0: It's good to be here again in Sanctuary, and this time, thankfully, my wife and newborn are to be with us, Julie and Emery, although he's currently out of the room having his diaper changed, I think, and he, that'll be the first of many things I do to humiliate my children from <laughs> over the course of the next year. I, had my, I have a daughter who's eight and a son who's five, and the other day, I had the first moment in which I realized that I could embarrass her. I won't tell the story now. But my heart is broken right now because I realize that I'm going to live out that story, too. But here he is. Here's Emery right here, all clean and new. It's a double-edged sword to have my wife with me because most most of the times I've come recently to sanctuary, she stayed home with the kids. So I got to tell her what I thought happened when I came, right? (laughs) Not so this time. The other kids are with grandparents grandparents are, they live here in Oklahoma, and they, of course, love the grandchildren infinitely more than they love us. So they said, you guys go on to Tulsa, and we'll keep the kids for you. So I'm sure the kids are having a good time. That said, we're going to turn to the scripture, and I want to read from Second Corinthians 5 in just a moment. But before I do, how many understand that it's not just what you say, it's how you say it, right? And then sometimes, sometimes it's not what you say or how you say it, it's where you say it. I went to Bible college. It's where I met my wife. And we had this ministry, this outreach. I'm not sure how wise it was, but we had this outreach that we did every year. We sent a team of college kids to Mardi Gras. (laughs) Right? How did we not know this wasn't the wisest thing? I'm not sure. But sent a, a team of kids to Mardi Gras to do evangelism. Full stop. Do evangelism only. And there was a particular young man who was very, very sweet, but also quite naive. He was, and maybe the sweetness was connected to the naivety, I'm not sure. But he went on this mission trip and then of like those trips always end by coming home and visiting churches and reporting, testifying about what you've seen God do, at least in this case, some of what you saw (laughs) happened. So they are going to, and this is the important detail in the story. They're visiting one Wednesday night, they're visiting a Baptist church This is a Pentecostal Bible college, but one of the students was from a Baptist church. She was a youth pastor there. She had gone on this trip with Mardi Gras, and so she brought the whole team with her back to her church, her Baptist church. It's not what you say, not how you say it. Sometimes it's where you say it. Brought the team back to the Baptist church to testify about what they had seen at Mardi Gras. Again, at least some of what they had seen at Mardi Gras. And this particularly naive, sweet young man, when he stood up to testify... He said, you know, for days I've been ecstatic about all that I saw God do. He said, but now I'm starting to feel a little unsettled because I realized that all these people we led to the Lord, we didn't actually connect any of them to a local church. And he said, I worry that many of these people we led in the sinner's prayer, it's like seed that's going to fall on ground that springs up immediately, but it's not going to have any rootage, not going to go deep because they're not going to be connected to a church that will disciple them and nurture them and so on. A genuine concern. Like I said, he's a sweet boy. But then the naivete kicked in and he decided to drive the point home in this way. He said, and the reason this worries me is, I don't know about you, but I think that once saved, always saved stuff is crap. (laughs) So sometimes it's not what you say. It's not even how you say it. It just happens to be where you say it, right? And there was immediate blowback as you would expect. So on Friday of this week, I was just kind of thinking over what I had prepared to say, and it hit me. I'm gonna say this in Tulsa. I'm gonna talk about faith in Tulsa. Well, that's like going to Rome to talk about the church, right? Like, who does this? Who does this? So my hope is that if you don't like what I'm saying, you'll be so distracted by the red pants <laughs> with the orange socks that you won't care, right? You'll be like, What did he say? I don't know. But, man, those pants were red, right? (laughs) That's my hope. All right, let's pray really quickly, and then we're going to jump into this madness, all right? Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to gather together as your family, sharing a meal together, and have your word broken before us. Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us here and now. Amen. Amen. My concern this morning about faith is that we have perhaps fundamentally misunderstood the relationship of faith to sight. 2 Corinthians 5, we all know the passage. We all heard the passage. We've heard it preached, and we've perhaps taught it ourselves, quoted it ourselves, sung about it. But Scripture says we walk by faith and not by sight. And for all the ways in which we're familiar with it, I wonder if we've ever really taken it seriously. We walk by faith and not by sight. Have we really let the truth of that hit us? That our life with God, our life with one another in God, is a life of faith and not sight. And that that means something for us. Have we really recalibrated our expectations of God? our expectations of one another, our expectations of church, our expectation of marriage, our expectation of children, in light of the fact that we walk by faith and not by sight. And what I want to do this morning is try to impress upon you the importance of coming to terms with that reality of the Christian life. That until the end, until Christ appears and sets the world right, our life is one of faith and not sight. And what happens when we begin to take that seriously? Not only this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, but throughout the New Testament, this truth is pressed home on us. Over and over again, the apostles say, you walk by faith and not by sight, although they say it in different ways. Take, take for instance, Romans chapter 8, verse 24, where Paul says, we are saved in hope. We are saved in hope. And hope that is seen is not hope. Now think about the ways in which we betray our lack of understanding when we talk about people having been saved. Almost all of us are familiar with, comfortable with, talking about salvation as if it's something that has happened to us. I was saved. When were you saved? All of that is couched in the past tense as if salvation is something that is behind you and then you've moved past. But the New Testament consistently speaks about salvation as something that's ahead of us. Paul says we are saved, that's past tense, in hope, and hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, we haven't seen our salvation yet, except in hope. Two chapters later in Romans 10, he will say to them, Now your salvation is nearer than when you believed. And we collapse believing in salvation into one event. For us, believing in salvation happened at the same time. But for Paul, believing precedes salvation. Believing takes you on a journey toward salvation And as you go on believing As you grow, go growing up into that belief You come nearer to the salvation Now is your salvation nearer than when you believed This is the same thing we see in Hebrews I mean this is the verse that built Tulsa Faith is the substance of things hoped for And the evidence of things not seen But I don't know that we take seriously What the text is actually trying to say to us It's the substance of things still hoped for. Our focus is on the word faith and the word substance. But the focus in the text is on the hoped for thing. The evidence of things not seen. And this is why he immediately launches into this what we call the hall of faith. And he's naming all of these great men and women of faith. And at the very end of the the text, the very end of the chapter, he says this. And these all died in faith, having not received the promise. Think about that. They all died in faith, having not received the promise. Because the promise is not seen yet. So the life of faith is not claiming the promise The life of faith is living toward the promise and in hope expecting the promise that is still to come. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. Again, familiar passage. After he's talked about the character of love that should mark our lives, Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly. Now we see in a glass darkly. King James language. Now we know in part, then we will know in full. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. And again, I know we're familiar with it, but do we let this text speak to us? Now, we know in part. No matter how mature we become as Christians, no matter how deeply we pray, no matter how faithfully we live, we know in part. And we will only know in part until the end. And there's no... Fasting and praying and believing—that's ever going to carry you out of that knowing in part into knowing in full until He appears. We never move out of faith into sight until He appears, and until He appears, we live in faith. We live knowing in part, and I wonder: Do we take that seriously? That for Christ to live faithfully and to speak faithfully as Christians is to own up front for everyone. I'm speaking as faithfully as I know how to speak, but I only know in part. Faithful preaching, faithful counseling, faithful witnessing is witnessing that prefaces itself by saying, I'm going to say this and I believe it's true, but I only know in part. Any other kind of speech claims too much. Now we see in a glass darkly. You remember the story of the man who was blind and Jesus touches him once and then asks him, what do you see? And the man says, I see people like trees walking. Whatever that means. He'd been reading Lord of the Rings, I suppose. <laughs> I see people like trees walking. Now, what would have happened if the man who had been touched once felt pressure to claim more than he should claim? What if he'd been touched once and he saw shapes moving, saw color patterns, but he couldn't see anything clearly. What if he had said, God has healed me? That's not faith. That's self-deception. That's not faith. That's not openness to God. That's an attempt to call the world something it isn't. It's denial. And we all, hear me, all of us, until the appearing of Christ, all of us live like that man who's been touched once. We see things, but we see Things like trees moving. And that doesn't seem to mean much until you think about the fact that you were blind. And now you at least have a sense that something is happening. There is something out there. Something is moving. You can't see it clearly yet. But you know something is happening. There's coming a day in which he will touch you again. And then we and everyone will see clearly that Jesus is Lord. But now we see in a glass darkly. Now. We have to take seriously that now as over against that then. I want you to think about it this way. The apostles had a certain kind of relationship to Jesus. They saw him in a certain way. They knew him in a certain way. And I'm going to come back to this at the end of the the sermon today. They saw him in a certain way. And then he went away. And that changed the way that believers relate to him. Think about Peter writing to his flock. He says... The one you have not seen, you still love. Now, Peter had seen him. Peter had seen him. Peter loved Jesus and had seen Jesus. But Peter is now writing to a community of people who love Jesus, but they have not seen him yet. So Peter has one experience of Jesus. Those people Peter is pastoring have another experience of Jesus. And both Peter and those people look forward to the day when all will see him. So there's the experience of Jesus the apostles have, the experience of Jesus that we have, and then there's the experience of Jesus that everyone is going to have when every eye sees him and every knee bows and every tongue confesses. We see the same thing in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the Lord appeared to as many as 500 believers at once. And then notice this. And he said, and last of all, he appeared to me. Last of all, he appeared to me. Do you see what Paul is saying? I'm an apostle because I was allowed this experience of seeing Jesus in a way that you're not. You don't seem like we did. 1 John opens the same way. 1 John says, we have seen him. We have seen the word of life. We have heard his voice. We have touched him. And we testify of him so that you may have fellowship with us. Not fellowship with him. Fellowship with us. And then goes on to talk about, and if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with him. So what John, what Peter, what Paul say up front to everyone is, we knew Jesus in one way, you know him in a different way. We knew him with sight and faith, you know him by by faith and not by sight. And all of us in this room belong to that category. We live in a now in which we do not have sight of Jesus in the way the apostles did or in the way that all will in the end. And it is crucial, I can't overemphasize this point, it is crucial that we know that about our experience with God. If we go back to that larger context of 2 Corinthians and we see all that Paul is arguing in leading up to that claim that we walk by faith and not by sight... We can start with that passage, incredibly familiar to all of us, 2 Corinthians 4 8, where Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And I don't know about you, but in my experience, I've almost always heard this verse said in celebration. It's as if we only take seriously the but not crushed, the but not in despair, the but not forsaken. And we should say, we're not crushed, we're not abandoned, we're not forsaken. But part of being faithful now is to say, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not in despair. We have to hold all that together because in this life, in this life, we have to acknowledge what is wrong as well as the hope that there is a God who's going to put it right. And faithful Christian living and faithful Christian speech recognizes that. So Paul says, we are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus. That's what comes to us at this table, the death of Jesus. We take his body and his blood, his sacrifice into our bodies to become sacrifices. And we live in this world as people who are, Paul says, carrying around the death of Jesus. In fact, he says, while we live now between that then of the apostles and the then of all, the end of all things, and this now we are always being given up to death. Now, this is not a way to get invited to do motivational speaking. Not what I'm saying and not what Paul said. Right? Rudy Giuliani and Coach K and Sarah Palin are not going to make room for Paul on that ticket right? to travel around and talk about life as being given up to death. But this is what Paul believes life is. Life is being given up to death. And the difference between the non-Christian and the Christian is that we are given up to death for Jesus' sake. That's the difference. Everyone is being given up to death. We are being given up to death for his sake. Because by faith, we're offering the experiences of our life. And in hope, we're looking past the experiences of our life to that end in which the one we know as Lord comes to be known as Lord by everyone everywhere. So we're, we're constantly, Paul says, afflicted, and we're always being given up to death. And then in the midst of that, he says, and we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with the scripture. I believed and so I spoke. And again, you can't have been in Tulsa very long without having heard that verse. The spirit of faith. I believed and I spoke. But Paul is quoting Psalm 116. And what Psalm 116 actually says is, I believed and I spoke. And I said, I am always afflicted. What? The spirit of faith says what? The spirit of faith says I am always afflicted. Because if you read Psalm 116, the, the psalmist is saying, I have my experience of the world. I have my experience of suffering. I have my experience of abandonment. I have my experience of being cast down. But I'm going to keep speaking in faith because I trust that I know your character and that someday, somehow, all that I'm experiencing is going to be dealt with and put Right? The spirit of faith is as much about acknowledging what's wrong as it is claiming hope in the God who's going to put it right. And faith is not denial of reality. Faith is facing reality and then believing that beyond what I can see, there is one coming who is going to change the way things are. And if we're going to speak faithfully as Christians, if we're going to represent God faithfully, if we're going to represent the church faithfully, we have to acknowledge that. And Paul says, because of this, we do not lose heart. And hear me. He only says that because he is always in danger of losing heart. Because if you're living with your eyes open, there are reasons all around you to lose heart. You hear a story about a baby that's genetically malformed, born and dies 11 months later. How do you not lose heart at that? I mean, I'm living through something right now with one of my best friends. How do you not lose heart when something like that happens? How do you not lose heart when someone treats you unjustly and you have no recourse? How do you not lose heart when you get report that your father has Alzheimer's? How do you not lose heart? Not by denying that those things are happening. But by believing that there is one Who someday is going to put that right We have hope We're not wishfully thinking We're not daydreaming We don't expect pie in the sky But we do have hope We do have hope And then Paul says this For this slight momentary affliction That's the way he describes life Life is slight momentary affliction it's preparing for us, he says, an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not what it can look not what it can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. Now think about that. We look at what cannot be seen. Because it hasn't happened yet, except for Jesus. God has raised Jesus from the dead and made him Lord. It hasn't happened in our lives in every way yet. It hasn't happened in our world in every, every way yet. But we look at what cannot be seen. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to them, For Christ must go on reigning until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now notice, he's not saying Christ is Lord and all his enemies are under his feet. He says, Christ is Lord, and he must go on reigning until all his enemies are under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when death is defeated, and he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, then we will say, oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Right now, right now, the evidence says grave has the victory. Right now, death has a sting. But we're the people who stand beside the casket and say, in spite of the sting we believe there is one who's coming and he's going to have the last word on death. Someday the one who is reigning will reign and this enemy, even this enemy, will be put under his feet. And we're the people who say that now. In the end, everyone will say, Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We're the ones who say it now when there's all kinds of evidence that he's not Lord. We're the ones who say now he's the one who doesn't desire us to suffer, who doesn't desire us to be sick, who doesn't desire us to die, even while we are sick and dying. And the only thing that saves us from being insane is that coming. This is why Paul says, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because if the Lord doesn't come back, if he doesn't appear, if he doesn't set the world right, then we were fools. But if, Our hope is set on something solid. If our faith is indeed in one who is living and who is coming, then that day will come in which he is recognized to be what we already experienced him to be. And our witness will be vindicated. But we can never fool ourselves. That's where we stand. We are the people who in the teeth of what seems to everyone else like the evidence are saying, No, God is good. He is love. Jesus is Lord, and He is going to put the world right, and nothing is wasted, and death will be defeated, and sin will be overcome. We are the people who say that no matter what is happening around us. We are the people who say God is able, but even if He does not save us, we will not bow a knee to a false God. We are those people. We are those people. So we have to rethink suffering, God's activity, and God's presence. To come to terms with this And I'm just going to say a few words about that And then we're going to end with looking at John 20 Being a Christian means That you're going to suffer more And in different ways Than anyone else suffers First we all suffer Whether you're a Christian or not Everyone suffers in this world Because of the, this world has not been put right yet This world has been broken by sin And it is not yet fully redeemed And so we suffer But being a Christian means there's another way of suffering that's peculiar to us because we've tasted and seen, in one way, that the Lord is good. This is why the characteristic prayer of the prophets in the Old Testament is, how long, Lord? Now think about where that prayer is birthed from. The prophets are crying, how long, Lord? Because they know the character of the Lord. But they also know the character of their experience. They know this Lord is one who can change what they're experiencing. That can bring justice, can make right what's wrong. If he'll come. And they're crying, how long, Lord? Because they don't understand why the Lord is delaying his coming. You can put this right. All of this that needs to be put right, you can put right. So come, Lord. How long before you come? And the characteristic prayer of the apostles in the New Testament is Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because their experience is, we know the character of this God. We've seen his face in Jesus Christ. We sense the working of his spirit. So come quickly and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And at the heart of our life of prayer has to be those two cries. How long, Lord, is genocide going to be allowed? How long, Lord, are babies going to be allowed to die before they reach maturity. How long, Lord, our marriage is going to be broken apart by infidelity? How long, Lord, are we going to allow injustice to happen without justice being done to those who did the injustice? How long? Faithful Christian speech includes that cry, how long? And it also includes even more deeply and even more persistently, come, Lord Jesus, because you are the one who's going to put those wrongs right. Come, Lord Jesus. And so because we know that We suffer in ways no one else even is capable of suffering. And as we come to take on Jesus' character, as we become compassionate like he is compassionate, we're going to suffer not only because of what's happening in our life, but because of what's happening in the lives of people around us. Paul, when he's listing all of the things that he has suffered in 2 Corinthians, and he talks about being shipwrecked and being stoned, not in the way you're thinking, being stoned... That wasn't a way of dealing with the shipwreck. Like that was another catastrophe. Right? He's listing all these. The last thing he lists is, and I have the daily care of all the churches. And who sins and I do not burn. Who is broken and I do not grieve. You know what he's saying? I have come to take on a pastor's heart. And that means that your problems become my problems. And I grieve for you even more than you can grieve for yourself. Like a parent grieves for the child more than the child is capable of grieving for herself. Who sins and I do not burn. And the more like Jesus, here's the good news for you this morning. The more like Jesus you become, the greater the burden is going to be on you. The greater the strength to bear the burden, but the greater the burden you're going to bear. That's what it means to become like Jesus now. To bear that burden for others as we live toward the end. I'm not saying that God is not present and not active. I'm not saying that suffering is all there is. There's joy in the midst of that suffering. There are moments in which the kingdom breaks through. Just moments, but there are moments in which the kingdom breaks through. And we see just for a moment what our God is like and what he wants for us. And we rejoice in those moments. But we don't make them mean more than they mean. One of the problems about the way that we talk about miracles sometimes is that we talk about miracles as if they are sight, as if we've had faith up to this moment, and then a miracle comes, and we have sight. So the preacher comes through our Bible college, and this is what, if any of you have ever been to Bible college, you know this is, this is standard fare. This is what you do in Bible college. He preaches and makes fun of the theology and Bible classes that we are, we're taking, right? Because that, again, that's what you do at Bible. You have guilty conscience about actually doing theology, right? even though you're there taking these classes. So he says, I don't, I don't care what you're learning in your theology and Bible classes. What matters is the power of God. And he said, you can debate with me theologically all you want, but the moment I pull someone out of a wheelchair, the argument is over. Oh, no. No, 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 no. That just begins the moment of reflection. Why has this person been healed? Why was this person not completely healed? This person who's been brought out of this wheelchair We'll be sick again. We'll certainly die again. Later or sooner. So why did God bring this person out of a wheelchair and not that one and not that one and not that one? Why were they ever allowed to be in the wheelchair in the first place? Did God predetermine for them to be sick so that later God could heal them? What kind of card trick is that? The problems theologically have just begun when someone is healed. It is as I've heard someone say, a miracle is a scandal. Because you don't know why God did that and not something else. And why he did this and not something else for that same person. Why does he heal as he healed this man? Touching him once and he sees like men like trees walking. And then it has to touch him again. And the answer is in this life we walk by faith and not by sight. And so we don't know why those things happen. The honest answer is we don't know for sure. That is the answer. We don't understand everything that God is doing. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we live in a time in which we see through a glass darkly. So we don't know those answers. And yet, we have hope that there's coming a day when we will know what we need to know. And that he will come and speak for himself. I can't explain all that he's doing, but I trust him. And when he comes, he'll speak for himself. That's all that we can say. He is present now. I want to make sure you hear me. He is present now, but he's present uniquely. He was present to the apostles in one way. He will be present in the end in another way. And right now he's present to us. He's not absent. He's just present to us in a way that calls forth faith and faithfulness. That's how he's present to us. It's not necessarily what we want. But if we trust him, we believe it's what we need. And so with that in mind, I want to look at John chapter 20. Just draw a few few points from this text. Which I really believe is the gospel of John's attempt to speak to this very experience. Two stories, really. The story of Mary Magdalene and the story of Thomas. I'll say these quickly and I'll be done. The The story opens, Mary's story opens by saying, On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now, I want you to hear that. It's the first day of the week. Jesus is risen. Easter has come. The new creation has dawned, but it's still dark. That's what it means to live now. To live now means we live in a time in which we know the resurrection has happened, but the darkness is still here. The new day is here, but it's still dark. And being faithful means acknowledging both of those things. Saying, yes, it's dark, but the day has come. I know your experience is that it's darkness all around, but the light is breaking. The dawn is coming. And she's there at the tomb. She sees it's empty. She assumes that someone's stolen the body. And she runs to find Peter and the beloved disciple and bring them back to the tomb. And they run back to the tomb. And we get this language of seeing over and over again in the text. The younger one runs first to the tomb and looks in and sees the linen cloths. And then Peter, older and heavier, comes behind and runs past him into the tomb. It doesn't have to always go together, being older and heavier, but in this case it does. He comes and sees, he runs into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths and the head covering rolled up. And then the other disciple, the beloved disciple, comes into the tomb with Peter. And the text says he sees and believes And then immediately tells us, for they did not understand the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now think about that. He sees and he believes. What? He didn't understand the scriptures. He didn't know that Jesus was to rise from the dead. So what is he believing? Because here's the thing I want you to hear. It's possible to have faith and not have that faith connected to the truth. It's possible to believe and not believe faithfully. This disciple, John, Lazarus, whomever it was, this beloved disciple believes, but he doesn't believe the truth because he doesn't know what scripture has said about resurrection. And so he and Peter go home, the text says. They went home, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. This is gut-wrenching. This woman who is the one who told them about the tomb, they forget her because they're satisfied with believing. They're satisfied with seeing an empty tomb, but she came to see Jesus, and she's not satisfied. And I admire admire the audacity not to be satisfied with the first thing that seems to be believing. And if you and I are going to be truly faithful, we have to be the kind of faithful that is willing to stand outside the tomb weeping When other people are running home with with what they think is enough, we have to have the audacity to say, "I don't know why they believe. I don't believe in that way yet." Genuine faith includes within it the truthfulness that says, "I won't say I believe something I don't. I won't lie my way toward the truth. I won't lie my way toward the truth." I won't bluff my way into believing. I'll stand outside the tomb weeping because I want to see him. But if I don't see him, I'm not going to say I see him. And then the angels speak to her and say, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken his body. I don't know where they've placed him. And then she turns and she sees the gardener, she thinks. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken his body. If you've taken me, tell tell me where he is and I'll go and get him. And then he says her name. Mary, and she sees him, right? She sees him, and she says, rabbi. But that's not true. He's not rabbi. He's God. And we realize right in this moment that she's not looking for Jesus. She's looking for her memory of Jesus. She's not looking for Jesus. She's looking for what she knew to be Jesus. And here's the thing I wanna tell you. Our expectations of God are always infinitely less and what God actually is. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it has not entered into the heart of a human being what God has prepared for us. And he has to set us free from the dictates of our expectations because we, like Mary, will be calling him rabbi when he's God. And she falls at his feet and clings to him and he says to her, not now. Not now. Do not cling to me. I must ascend to my father and you must go. And tell the others what you have seen. I wonder if there are some of us right now who are trying to cling to a God who's saying to us, not right now. Is he near to us? Absolutely. Is he overshadowing us? Absolutely. But there's a way of clinging to him that is not faithful. That's an attempt to not have to face the realities that he calls us to face. And so he says to Mary, go. I must ascend. And then we immediately open on the story of Thomas. You can stand with me if you will. We open on the story of Thomas, doubting Thomas. We've all heard the story umpteen times. Thomas is not there when Jesus appears to the other apostles. They tell him, we have seen the Lord. Again, over and over and over and over and over in this passage, the writer tells us, talks to us about seeing. We have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, well, I didn't, and I won't believe until I see. I won't believe until I see. The next time Jesus appears to them, Thomas is there. And Jesus says, come here, Thomas. Put your finger here. Touch my hands. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas sees more clearly than Mary did. He falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says this, and I believe this was John writing to all those Christians who, like us, did not see Jesus in the way the apostles did. And have not seen him in the way that we all will in the end. Jesus says this to him. You have seen and believed. But more blessed are those who do not see. And yet believe. And what I want to tell you is the Lord knows we have not seen. He understands that we have not seen. And for us to have faith and acknowledge our not seeing is our honor. It is more blessed to believe without seeing than it is to see and believe. That's why he said, I'm going to go away from you apostles and greater works than these will be done. Because when you believe and yet acknowledge that you cannot see, that is a faithful witness in a way that the apostles could not be faithful because it wasn't their opportunity. So what I want to say to you this morning is, in fact, an encouraging word. Your life is going to be broken in all kinds of ways. And the Lord sees that. And you will not see him put it right until the end. But if you will go on being faithful, when he appears, this is what God is going to say to you. More blessed are you because when you didn't see me, and you couldn't put your hands in my wounds, and you couldn't wrap your arms around my feet, you kept believing. And more blessed are those who believe without seeing than those who see and believe. God, thank you for placing us in this time, in this place. And give us the grace to lean into this calling, to believe without seeing. And help us, Lord, to learn to be faithful in our speech and in our lives as we long for your appearing. And we say, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. Amen.